0: Hi, I'm James Atkinson, and welcome to the conversation we recorded this week with James Omond, who is an expert in intellectual property law. A registered trademark attorney, James established his own law firm, Omond & Co., in 2002, where he now specialises in providing IP advice to wine, beer, and spirits producers through a dedicated trademarks arm, Australian Beverage Trademarks. I hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Cryo Malt, supplying brewers premium local and imported malts for 25 years, combined with the best customer service so you can get on with the business of brewing.
0: James Omond, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Thanks, James. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Look, we often start this question with um, who is James Omond?
1: Well, James Symond is a lawyer and trademark attorney. Um, I got my start in the alcohol back in uh, when I was at university and um, paid my way through uni working for a uh, a bottle shop and uh, fine wine retailer and wholesaler, and got a a, a taste for for the liquid stuff. Um, there, did my master's thesis in relation to the wine industry, protection of geographical indications. Then I worked in-house for um, Southcorp, who uh, at the time was the biggest wine company in Australia. I was there for seven and a half years as in-house lawyer. Um, unfortunately, just missed the the beer period. that just sold South Australian Brewing before I came on board there. Um, and then in 2002, I set up my own firm, um, went out on my own and... Um, Have been practising by myself ever since and um, specialising in um, sort of always being like an outsourced in-house counsel for for a long time for for smaller producers who couldn't afford their own um, lawyer and um, been really doing quite a lot of uh, work in the trademarks field for probably the last 10 years or so um, for... Um, uh, a lot of wine companies um, initially because of my, my background at Southcorp and then moving into sort of the beer and spirit space as well. So um, beer, um, I think uh, you might have mentioned uh, in the, the the pre-seed that uh, acted for Stone and Wood um, in the, the recent uh, Pacific Ale case. And in fact, I um, knew Jamie before he even, Jamie Cook before they even set up Stone and Wood. So I've sort of been there from from day dot with them working on corporate matters like shareholders' agreements and um, and obviously the, the, the intellectual property side of things. Um, and then, you know, the last few years have just sort of broadened out and working for a few other um, of the craft beer producers and, uh, you know, very much enjoying that space particularly given, you know, how much of a, a boom in in activity and new producers and new products there are, which is, uh, uh, I'd say, manna from heaven for a trademark lawyer.
0: <laughs> are there any other industries that you could really compare um, craft beer to at the moment where there are so many small players um, coming into the market? You know, we, we we're sort of counting a new brewery every week. Each brewery is probably going to have, you know, five beers that they're going to want to try and trademark. Um, are there any other industries that are as dynamic as that from an IP point of view?
1: Not so much from an IP perspective. Uh, well, sorry, not currently. I think you look at at the wine industry, and it's probably, in terms of um, industry participants, you know, probably 25 years behind where we saw the the, the huge boom in. Wineries and wine brands, um, a lot of it off the back of the the wine equalization tax rebate. Um, but you know you've you've got something like uh, two and a half thousand producers in the wine industry um, and you know of those about the top twenty producers would produce somewhere between ninety and ninety five percent of the volume. Um, and you know the other two and a half thousand are sort of you know very much, um, at the small end of, of volumes, and you know they, they sort of went through a similar issue with uh, a lot of disputes over names, with people treading on each other's toes because you know they hadn't made wise wise selections of of the name coming into the into the industry. So I think that's a that's a comparison, um, say 25 30 years apart. In terms of the you know, number of new participants um, in a, a, a consumer space, it's not really. I mean, you look at the number of IP companies coming through and people doing, um, you know, app developers, and uh, you know that's something you can start out without much in the way of capital or uh, no barriers to entry. But um, you just, you're just not really seeing that uh, sort of proliferation that's so visible to consumers and, and, and the importance of um, branding and, and differentiation. So I think at the moment, to me, beer is pretty much out on its own with, with that, uh, that rapid growth and you know, huge numbers of, of people coming into the market.
0: Is there anything about the the way the beer and the way that it's branded and the naming conventions that, that um, brewers tend to use that make it any more or less susceptible to um, trademark disputes as compared with wine, for example?
1: Yes, there is, uh, because wine has traditionally um, been based around uh, varietal labelling, so Chardonnay, Riesling, Cab Sav, that sort of stuff. And uh, you generally have a primary brand and then the varietal, whereas in the beer space, although you do have um, recognised styles and varieties, whether it's um, you know IPA, American Pale Ale, um, uh, to straight you know lager or you know some of the, the newer ones developing like XPA, um, you find that the producers will have their, their principal, um, brand, but then they'll have a sub brand. So, um, most, you know, a lot of the time they won't just have, say, Wolf of the Willows, um, IPA. It'll be, you know, uh, Wolf of the Willows homage or homage, however you want to pronounce it, IPA. So you have that second, um, like a, a sub label, which, which, from a, a technical perspective, is is a trademark, and I think um, producers possibly don't stop to think about that as often. And then, um, as a as a further differentiation, you often have guys um, coining their own term for the style they're putting out. So, whether it's a proprietary style or whether it's a name they give to a style that's already in existence, and I mean, we're not going to talk about the Pacific R case, but that's exactly the the situation there where you've got someone um, coming up with a new name for, um, and, and the question is, is that, is that style of beer or is that a brand of beer or is it both?
2: And, and I guess, James, there's only so many hop puns that the that, that the market can have before we, we, we start seeing brewers clashing with the names that they come up with.
0: And before you get yeah, hopping mad. i see
2: what you did there james
1: (laughs) that that's right and um and one of the things that that people need to be mindful of there is that um although the play on words or the pun might um seem a very significant difference to to them and anyone who knows about brewing that doesn't mean that to the general public, uh, it's going to differentiate between the two of them. So, you know, there's been a few examples in the US along those lines. Like one was original gravity versus final gravity. And, you know, the 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 second into the market said, well, it, you know, it's a completely different concept. But uh, unfortunately, you know, you're either going to end, end up in front of a, a trademarks examiner, a trademarks office or a judge, and, and they're not going to know what this, the difference is between those concepts. Um, so uh, they're just going to say, well, look, you know, from a consumer perspective, they've both got the word gravity. That's a significant element. So therefore, the marks are deceptively similar. And you know, sorry, Mr. Second in time, uh, you need to come up with a, a new a new name and spend a whole lot of money on on rebranding. And, and even even where it's not actually a beer name, like there's. Um, uh, another again another us example there was uh, a company came out with session lager and look, it should never really register in the first place because of the uh, nature of session as a as a as a descriptive term but it did and then someone else came out with a joint session IL. and obviously a joint session is uh, a political term but again second into the market um the the, the earlier guys took exception and the judge backed the the original, um, you know, first to, first to register guy with the word session. So, um, yes, uh, it's – and when I presented at the um, the CBIA conference on on this issue um, in Adelaide um, earlier this year, I sort of picked uh, the names of a few of the, the recent members who joined the CBIA and now the IBA and said, well, you yeah, know, these are, are good names because they're – they're unusual and they're distinctive and they don't relate to, to the product. Uh, and then there was ones where I said, look, you know, not such a good name because, um, you know, it it relates to the product and therefore you've got other people in the market with um, either with something similar or someone else comes into the market and, and um, it's hard to stop them because they might be using it in a
2: descriptive term. Does that mean there, there's a couple of famous cases probably going back close to 10 years now in New Zealand, where Monteith was able to register Saison and uh, Radler, which are both international beer styles, but they were able to register the words themselves as a trademark. And I I think it highlighted the lack of sophistication and knowledge amongst beer back in that day uh, for the um, trademark examiners. I mean, is that something that shouldn't have passed? And if it does, and it's clearly an error on the trademark uh, approving boards uh, or bodies' um, part, can that be rectified later? Or once it's admitted as a trademark, it's just a trademark?
1: Um, no. Well, sorry. First question is no, they shouldn't have been registered, um, as you say that there should have been more awareness um, by the trademarks examiner. And I think with um, with the power of Google nowadays it's less likely for that sort of a mistake to be made. In terms of rectification, um, yeah, in Australia, for example, um, that can be, um, that can be rectified. There's, there's two processes. One is applying directly to the um, trademarks office and just basically appealing to the, just by a letter, appealing to the trademarks uh, registrar to say, look, this should never have been registered, please remove it. Generally that won't happen. Um, because they say, well, look, you know, we've we've uh, we granted it, and the uh, the 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 applicant for the trademarks relied on the registration, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then your second option is to apply to the federal court, um, and that's under a different section of the Act. And the federal court can um, what's called expunge, which is uh, one of my favourite words, uh, expunge the trademark from the register um, for. A number of different reasons. It may be because um, it's, a, it's a generic term now or, or because it's become generic or it could be because it should never have been accepted for registration at the time. I mean, the problem with that is that it's um, it's an expensive process and whoever's doing it is sort of like you know, being some sort of a policeman for the industry. But, you know, who, who wants to, to pick up the tab for that personally when, you know, you're trying to free up a term that uh, that any producer would be able to go out and use. So unless it's something you know particularly important or a particular style of beer that they might be known for, for example, um, you know it's 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 unusual for that to happen. That, that, it normally happens um, where there's a trademark dispute, and the um, the person who's being accused of infringing the mark um, is being sued. And so they say, you know, as a as a as
2: a countermeasure, they they apply to try and have that um, earlier trademark removed. If we can step back, why is a trademark so important? I mean, aren't we all mates in the craft beer industry, and won't we just all re- like respect each other's, uh, you know, ideas?
1: Well, of course we are all mates, uh, Matt, and everyone is very friendly, right up until the time someone treads on someone else's toes. <laughs> um, and look, there's some there's some classic examples out of the US where um, there has been uh, treading on toes and um, one brewer's picked up the phone to another um, and said, you know, look, I was there first. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you were, you know, you weren't aware of that, um, but, you know, please, uh, please come up with a different name. And, and um, there was, uh, you know, there, there was abominable ale uh, versus abominable winter ale. There was um, one for Black Flame. Um, you know, in each of those cases, um, the, the the brewer-to-brewer phone call resulted in the, the second person to market withdrawing the the product. Um, and there, in fact, there was one. Um, oh, the name escapes me now, but um, the the two brewers ended up doing a collaboration brew. Um, and like ten years later, that the, the product was still being released and and it was actually being co-distributed by the two um, the two brands. Um, I think it was I think it was Russian River Brewing and Avery Brewing, the two the two brewers. But I can't
2: remember off the top of my head what the but it was the name collaboration, was not litigation or something along those lines. Yeah, I, I, I remember it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and look, you know, I know out here um, there's been similar instances like. You know, just I know stone and wood because um, the that's who I work with and um, they they had a thing where um, yeasty boys brought out a, a pacific ale and and in fact it was yeasty boys rang stone and wood and said look oh, sorry, I sorry didn't realize that you know you guys were pursuing them as a trademark and you know we're sorry and, and Stonewood said that's fine you don't know, pay us a like a ten dollar license fee or whatever you can you know you're welcome to sell through the the rest of the um the product that's already got a brand on, but don't do it again. And you know, and that that um, that was it. Um, when you say, "Aren't we all friends?" Yeah, you know, that works to an extent, but obviously, in some cases, it doesn't succeed. And that's where the uh, the trademark registration comes in, um, and and the uh, the the benefits, uh, you know, the necessity for that, because you find that the um, you know the big trip for young players is that people think because they've got a, a company name registered, for example, or a business name or even a domain name, they say, but, you know, I've got it registered. But those three things, the company name, the registered business name, the domain name, they don't actually give you any right to the to the, uh, to the name that you've registered. And even more importantly, they don't protect you from someone else alleging that you've infringed their rights. Um, and... Yeah, another thing like you you can build up. Say say you haven't registered your name as a trademark, you can build up a reputation in that, and that becomes what's known as a common law trademark. But that has very limited rights in terms of being able to assert it against someone else. And um, it, it if you then try to take action, it's it's incredibly expensive and and difficult because you've got a establish not just reputation but reputation in the relevant markets and also show that you've lost sales as a result um so say um you've got oj Dan in hobart but he's got hot trial brewing company um now he's only doing very small volumes and it's you know it's on tap um i think around around town in tassie um, but if he didn't have that register as a trademark and someone else set up say in perth with the same num uh, same name then you'd find that each of them would have their common law rights, common law trademark, just in their area where they were making sales and where they had reputation. And they couldn't prevent someone in another area from using the name. Whereas if you register it as a trademark, it gives you protection all around Australia. Um, And, you know, not just that geographic spread, but also even before you've sold your first keg or your first can, um, you've got protection. You don't have to build up a reputation. So that, that's a couple of the, the primary reasons why, you know, you, you
2: should be, if, if the name's important to you, you should be registering it as a trademark. What happens if you've got a trademark, um, somebody infringes upon it? Um, again, going back to we're all mates in the industry and there is a lot of scandal early on um, in, in craft beer, where people would post letters that they got from the lawyers from one solicitor, you know, from from one brewery, saying you're infringing upon our uh, trademark. What happens if you have a trademark and you don't in, um, enforce it, or you you just let somebody else start to use it? Couple
1: of um, problems with that for you uh, as the as the owner. Um, the first is if you don't act promptly, then the the other person builds up. Sales and reputation themselves, and the courts don't look very kindly on on you sitting back and saying, actually, what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait for say three years until I've made heaps of sales, and then when I sue them for infringement, the the damages they'll have to pay to me will be even bigger. Um, so you find that the court just says, well, look, you know, you 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 um, made a mistake in allowing them to continue to trade after you've become aware of it. Uh, and therefore, we're not going to um, protect your 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 rights. And what can also happen is, say um, say one person starts copying the name, and you know, particularly where it's being used as a as like a proprietary brand, if you like, rather than the the, the principal brand, then someone else goes, well, actually, I really like that style of beer, um, and obviously, we're not protecting that as a as a proprietary name. So I'm going to bring out one the same. And so once you get two, three, four, five people bringing out um, one with the same name or a very similar name, um, the it it dilutes the, the power um, of the original registration. And in fact, it then becomes um, liable to get um, removed from the register because the whole, um, you know, when, when you go back to, to first principles about what a trademark does, it it, um, it distinguishes the goods of one producer or one trader from those goods of all other traders so once you've got four or five people or even two or three people using the same name it no longer um, it, it no longer functions what a registered trademark is supposed to do and therefore again it can be reliable to get taken off the register if there's some reason why you're prepared to let someone else use the name, what you need to do is is get that documented in writing with some sort of form of a, a trademark licence so that as far as um, other producers are concerned, um, they can't point the finger and say, well, they're doing it, therefore I should be able to do it, because if you've got a licence in place, it means that um, those problems I was talking about, about failing to to distinguish the goods of one producer that no longer is likely to be such an issue
2: so if i've just opened my brewery i've got a couple of names that are fairly unique should i be moving to register those trademarks straight away or do i can i sit back and wait until i see if the the business takes off
1: ah do you want the commercial or the legal response to that um I mean, the, the commercial response is that, you know, every every cent and every dollar is um, is precious when you're starting up um, and, you know, compromises um, need to be made at times. And um, so you're not going to, you know, register everything, every single um, brand you think you might use in every single country that you might end up, you know, exporting to in 10 years' time. Um, you know if you if money wasn't an object, if you know you're one of these uh, companies that's just hasn't brewed a, a beer yet but it's capitalized at ten million dollars because you've got lots of um, well-known people investing in it, then yeah you, know, you might go down that route. But um, assuming you don't have uh, a bottomless uh, a wallet, the um, you need to register your principal brand so that you know that that's not something you've got to change. Um, And, you know, so you've got that certainty to go ahead with with your website design, your labels, all of your um, marketing collateral. Um, In terms of the sub-brands, that might be something that you say, well, actually, let's, you know, we're going to start off with, um, you know, four um, beers in the core range and a half a dozen seasonals or um, special collaborations or one-offs or whatever um, you know, you wait to see whether whether they become actually, you
0: know, really successful and
1: before you spend the money on protecting
0: those. James, when you were saying earlier, um, we were talking earlier about, you know, the brewery names that were to be avoided because they had some sort of direct link with, with the brewing industry, were you sort of referring then to the, you know, just to the use of grain or hops or Whatever these obvious names um, that are more likely to get breweries into into disputes with each other.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, bad names, for example, like common surnames, um, uh, because you just can't register them to start with, and then someone else with with the same surname can uh, can come in to the market with the same thing. So, like in the the wine industry, for example, the surname Olson. There's like three different producers with Olson, and you know, and people find that very confusing. Um, descriptive names so uh, you know malt mash ton um, hops hoppy yeah you know, any any of the you know the ingredients or the processes um, geographic names uh, are not great either um, the like um, there was the, the the issue with byron bay for example a couple of years ago when when the um, the bottled product was being um, Done under licence by um, CUB, um, brewed at Watervale, um, and the ACCC stepped in on that. Um, generic or auditory names, so you know things like you know best, greatest, super, fantastic, um, or deceptive names, which th- that, that doesn't come up quite so often. So they're the bad ones. Um, good names, I mean, the best names are invented words, words that just you've just made up yourself because. There's no way someone else can come up with something similar and have any um, any sort of justification for it. Um, arbitrary names are good. So, like the the classic um, example of that for, um, for from a trademark perspective is North Pole Bananas because you're not going to have bananas grown there. But from a beer perspective, something like Elephant Beer um, because it it has no no connection. Although I suppose you might say, you know, given the the strength of the um, Carlsberg product, maybe that was what the what it was alluding to. Um, suggestive products, uh, suggestive names are good. So, um, like Yeasty Boys is, is a good one because um, although it's got the word yeast in there, um, it's sort of you know it's it's a play on you know the Beastie Boys, um, but it's sort of you know, it 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 works well, um, and and obviously you know the the, the final. Qualify for a good name is that it shouldn't be similar to to an existing um, brand or trademark that's already out there.
0: If you get in first and name your brewery after a location, um, for example, Mornington Peninsula Brewery or something like that, what what's the you know what's the issue with doing that?
1: The first issue is that if you try and register just the words, you won't be able to get it up because the trademarks office will say. No, sorry, anyone else who um, wants to sit up on the Mornington Peninsula should be able to use the words Mornington Peninsula on their label. You you can get a uh, a name like that registered, but you have to have been trading under it for you know, generally 10 years. If you've been successful and you've got lots of um, good press to back you up and good sales figures and so on, maybe after about five years. Um, so you find that people who who go down that route, um, the only way they're going to get their trademark registered is in conjunction with a logo. So it's the logo that adds the descriptiveness to be able to get past that, that stage one with the trademarks office. But even once you've got it registered, um, the problem is that someone sets up, you know, 5Ks down the road and they incorporate the words Morning to Peninsula into their brand um, as describing where they're um, their breweries located, and you can't do anything about that, um, even though you were there first, because it's not being used as a trademark. It's being used um, in a descriptive
2: sense. What should businesses be thinking of uh, when when they do start? It, it sounds like taking apart that. You know, most startups are fairly cash strapped. They should be consulting with a um, trademark attorney to be getting advice on even their brewery name and uh, those sorts of things?
1: Yeah, look, you can do um, searching yourself. I, I shouldn't say this as a trademark attorney because people should come and pay me to do it, but, um, you yeah, you can do it yourself. The um, If you go to the IP Australia website and follow the links through to trademarks and trademark searching, it used to be a dark art, searching the trademark register. Um, you know, hats off to the trademarks office. They've, they've done a great job of, making it easier for um, for for the, the layman to do um, but there's still there's still a few tricks of the trade that that um, before you sort of finally um, go down the, the the path of applying it it, it is useful um, and can save you money to to use a trademark attorney um, you know, the first thing I'd advise people to do though is is, you know, you often, when you come out with a new name, you might come up with sort of half a dozen or 10 different um, names or variations. And, you know, I wouldn't be going to a trademark attorney and saying, advise me on all these because you'll get a massive bill for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where, um, you know, I'd be um, doing, doing starting off myself um, in searching the register so that, you know, the, the, the obvious ones um, come up that, um, that that someone else has already got or something too similar. And then once you've narrowed it down uh, to things that you think, um, you know, should be okay, um, that's when, you know, you you, know, you can go to the trademark attorney. Because the other thing is there's a, what's called an assisted filing service where you can pay the trademarks office and say, um, this is the name I want to use, and they'll give you like a pre uh, preliminary advice but you've then got to follow up and and lodge within five days on that. So it brings in a um, uh, an element of having to move reasonably quickly. plus you do have to pay um, pay for that. Uh, but if you don't go down that route and you file your application, it takes about four months before the examiner comes back and says yes or no. Um, and generally, when people have have got down to to finalising their name, they don't want to be hanging around for four months with that, that element of uncertainty around it, whereas if you go if you go to a trademark attorney, they can give you an advice on um, this is clearly registrable or this is not going to register um, because of these reasons or maybe it's in that grey area in between, but they can also help you with this, what's called an expedited examination. So it's a, filling in another form um, and giving a reason as to why you need to know quickly and that the, the time frame on that is usually about two to four weeks. So that's sort of another area of value where an attorney can get things happening for you quicker.
2: Yeah, there was a recent case, uh, and it was one of the things that actually prompted this chat. Um, I received a media release um, from a brewery in Australia called Hobo Brewing. And I'll get a media release, and then I'll often sort of do some research to sort of see what they're saying on their website. So I Googled Hobo Brewing and came up with a website. Everything about the website that I landed on was so similar to the images that I saw in the media release that I assumed that I was looking at the the same brewery. That was how close the presentation was. And it wasn't until I looked more closely that I realised that what I was looking at was a UK hobo brewing. Now, the name is the same. The lettering is the same. The look on the cans was very much the same. Um, The hobo brewing in the UK is a very small brewery. They obviously hadn't gone to the step of protecting their trademark in Australia. What rights have they got um, when somebody sets up an almost identical brand um, in in Australia? And should Australian breweries, even if they've just, you know, have a pipe dream of one day exporting beer, be looking at registering their trademark overseas?
1: Well, it's a bit like the, the example I gave about the, you know, the Hobart um, brewery and the Perth brewery, where neither of them uh, have registered their trademark, that their, their rights Um, extend only as far as their reputation extends. So if you haven't made sales somewhere, and even if you have made sales but no one's heard of you, then you don't have rights unless you've actually registered the trademark. So in terms of the the rights of Hobo UK against Hobo Australia, um, they pretty much uh, um, are not going to, to be able to do anything about it because, on the one hand, there's trademarks, um, and no registration means that they um, uh, they can't they can't succeed um, if they you know didn't oppose the mark at the time, yeah, and unless there was you know fraud or something like that um, that might allow them to go back and and get it expunged. Um, the the other two elements would be um, under the Australian Consumer Law, which used to be the Trade Practices Act for Misleading and Deceptive Conduct. But for consumers to be misled or deceived, they need to be aware of the, the previous producer. But so again, you need reputation to be able to get up on that. Um, and then the third one is the old English uh, action of passing off, um, which is where you haven't so much copied someone's name, but you might have copied the, the the branding elements and so that, that people um, you're sort of trading off the earlier person's reputation. But as again, you know, you need the reputation there. So that's a that's a fairly long way of saying that the UK um, business doesn't have much of a shot of, of, of doing anything about what the Australian guys have done. In terms of, you know, Australian producers who've got an eye on um, exporting in the long run, um, you know, it comes back to that same commercial question before. Ideally, you know, if money was no object, yes, you would um, you would identify your key overseas markets and you'd file um, trademark applications in there. Um, now you've got to, once you once you've um, registered, you have to use the the uh, the the mark within five years. Otherwise, you know, it's liable to be removed if someone else brings an action. And in fact, in the U.S., um, it, it's quite different to everywhere else. They 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 really try and keep their register clear for just people who are using the mark. So five years after you've registered your your trademark in the US, you have to file a a declaration that says you've actually used it um, on the goods that it's registered for in that time. And then, again, 10 years' time when it comes to to renewing your mark again, you have to put in a, a stat deck saying that you've used it. So ideally, yes. Identify export markets you might um, you might be going to down the track and and register for them, but costs can be prohibitive on that. Um, and the the you know if you're only small, then it's unlikely that um, that someone else will have you know registered your name to try and trade off your reputation. It's more of a danger that if you've got fantastic imagery and uh, logos and that sort of stuff that someone might go actually that that looks fantastic and they use it um as the inspiration if you like for for their um their brand in uh you know in the overseas market and that's where you might miss out china is is the exception to that that um there's a lot of what's called trademark squatters up there where um they um, they just comb through overseas um publications and uh, and look at uh, what brands um are being used and file trademarks in a sort of a you know a hopeful manner. and uh, it's not just the likes of um you know penfolds and Nike and Moet and shandon and and uh, heineken and and those that um that these trademark squatters target up in in um, China. yeah you know, I've been flabbergasted by some of the, the marks, um, there was one I was doing recently for Brim Creek Vineyard down in, in Tassie and, you know, the, <laughs> you've got to be pretty switched on to the, to the Tasmanian wine market, you know, let alone the Australian wine market to have heard of Brim Creek because he only does, um, you know, a couple of thousand cases a year but some, some bloke up in China had already registered that, that name.
2: The other big one, on the same note, the other big one is I recently registered a trademark and uh, within a week of it being accepted on the trademark register here, uh, or passing through, um, I started getting letters from the International Trademarks Organization offering to uh, list it, um, you know, sending me an invoice for $1,800 to to list it in the International Book of Trademarks, which is one of those scam letters where, you know, it's... It has absolutely no weight or anything, but it's a very well-crafted scam.
1: Oh, yeah, and there's, there's, there's about four or five at any one time operations doing that. And they, as you say, they look so genuine um, and a lot of people get taken in by them and some of them um, come from an Australian PO box address and some of them come from, from overseas. And some of them make it look like you actually have to um, pay this to... To maintain your own registration let alone to go on some other thing and the other thing that you'll find is that you'll start getting emails as well from um hong kong and china saying that um that the that they're a uh, a domain name registrar and um someone's trying to register this series of six or eight domain names using your trademark and you know they're giving you the opportunity to register them first to prevent this other person being able to do it and again it's another scam but um people particularly where people are doing managing their own trademarks and um, um they um they can get taken in by these whereas if you're using an attorney the attorney becomes your address for service um and so that that cuts out probably about half of the scams because um it doesn't go to the to
2: the correct address terrific well uh, james did you have anything before we uh before we shuffle on off
0: no, I think it's it's been a great chat. I think that's all from me.
2: Yeah, no, fascinating. Well, uh, James, as as I said, you're from Oman and Co, but you've also got Australian beverage uh, trademarks. Is is your business uh, catering? So certainly, uh, anyone who is setting up a brewery or has a brewery and they haven't nailed down that trademark yet, they probably should get in touch with you. I'd imagine. Yep,
1: that'd be great. Happy to chat, and um, you know, first instance, always happy to chat with the clock off to just sort of. Yeah, see if I'm the right person if I can help out. But um, yeah, happy to uh, to to help out. Hopefully.
2: And I I should stress that this isn't a paid uh, commercial. uh, (laughs) It it is uh, just an increasingly important issue in as the craft beer market flourishes and uh, blooms, and we get you know 450 and upwards uh, breweries all vying in the same space that it is becoming increasingly. So that was why we uh, got you on. So James, thank you very much for joining us on beer is a conversation and uh, hopefully, well, is there an end in sight to stone and wood? Will we be able to talk to you at some stage about some of the issues in, involved in that? Cause it's quite a complicated one.
1: I'd love to have a chat about it at a later date, but yeah, as you say, it's complicated. We've got, we haven't finished round three yet and round four already begun, which I think um, you guys have mentioned on uh, one of the previous news
2: podcasts, uh, as well as on the website. Terrific. Well, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll wait with uh, not too bated breath. <laughs> no, you might go blue in the face, unfortunately. Terrific, James. Mate, thank you very much for your time, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon.
0: Thanks, Matt. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure. That was James Omond. If you enjoy Radio Brews News and Beer is a Conversation, Please rate us and leave a review on your favourite podcasting app, like iTunes. We look forward to joining you next time for another conversation about beer. <music>